Hello and welcome to the special edition of the RHS Gardening Podcast. I'm Lee Hunt, Principal Gardening Advisor for the Royal Horticultural Society based at RHS Garden Wisley. Today we're talking about houseplants, or should I call them indoor plants? For many years, this rather loosely defined group of plant species was much maligned. Houseplants have been considered a little marmite. Some loved them, some hated them. They languished under the reputation of being unfashionable, a bit 1970s or granny-ish. In recent years, I'm pleased there's been a resurgence, and it's safe to say that my delight in this renaissance is shared by thousands of secret houseplant lovers around the country, including those gathered around the table here today. So-called houseplants include many fabulous species from all over the globe, from colourful exotics, delicate orchids, carnivorous jungle monsters to ethereal air plants. There really is something to please everyone's taste. But many people shy away from growing houseplants after one too many dead ferns. Problems with scorched leaves, aphid problems and mealybugs. So we thought it's the perfect time for a podcast to discuss the benefits and pleasures of growing indoor plants and to get some expert tips on how to make yours flourish and the common pitfalls to avoid. By the end of today's podcast, we hope we'll inspire you, if not to turn your home into an urban jungle, then to bring a little pleasure of the outdoors inside. So today I'm joined by houseplant lovers and experts. My name's uh, Christopher Young. I'm the team leader of the Glasshouse here at RHS Garden Wisley. My name's Rob Sterling and I'm one of the gardening advisors here at Wisley. Rob, what sparked your interest? Gosh, I think it goes back right to when I was a child um, in my aunt's conservatory. She was very into uh, growing in houseplants and other tropical plants. And uh, just thinking about it, I can actually smell what um, the conservatory was like, you know, all those years ago. And I think from then, um, that really stimulated an interest in fragrant plants. And um, that's really what I kind of specialise in today in, in terms of collecting plants. Chris, you arrived clutching one of your favourites. What's that? So I brought along today uh, Pilea peperomioides. It's a member of the kind of nettle family. It doesn't look at all like a nettle. It's got these round leaves and they're quite stiffly stalked as well. Yes, it's got these kind of lovely uh, round, largest leaves, uh, which are very kind of succulent in appearance. Um, interestingly, you can see here with like leaf petiole, actually attaches kind of uh, in the centre of the leaf almost. And where it attaches, you kind of get this kind of light green spot. It's got a very kind of erect habit. Some of the challenges we see on like social media is people trying to grow them as tall as possible. Easy to grow? Really easy to grow. It's kind of ideal for kind of uh, sunny windowsill, not too much direct light, but kind of bright position. And it's fairly easy to propagate. Interestingly, it's been shared amongst amateur gardens for years. A kind of a mystery, botanical mystery up until like the 1980s when it was actually only officially described. Rob, what's your favourite plant? One of my favourite plants is an orchid called Rinca stylus gigantea. Um, has the most extraordinary scent. It's a bit like um, raspberry essence and sandalwood. And it does really well indoors, surprisingly. You'd think something that exotic would be rather difficult to grow, but it's not. Um, it seems to be quite tolerant. So it, it lends itself very well to indoor conditions. And when it's in flower, you can smell the flowers all over the house. It's absolutely amazing. Right. So something new and exciting. Well, I've bought something in as well. Um, it's hard to see anyone else in the room. It's actually <laughs> a plant off my windowsill in my office, and it's Phlebodium blue star. Uh, Phlebodium is actually with a pH in this case. 
it's a fern and I like it because it has this dusky blue tinge to the foliage. They've got very finger-like leaves. And one thing I also like is the roots have, have got these interesting, almost like fingers with hairy bits that creep out from the pot. So you feel if you moved away from your desk, it might actually take over and answer the gardening questions for you if you're really lucky. It's been really easy on the windowsill, despite the quite scorching sunshine, it, it's generally survived. And it, it gets watered, but of course, go away for holiday it doesn't and it it still survives so i've warmed this plant uh, very much rob you we get a lot of inquiries from members but why do you think houseplants have increased in popularity recently well there's quite a lot of interest currently on the health benefits of houseplants and you know there's a lot of stories in the media you know relating to how plants can clean the air and um, help to make people feel better in themselves just by working say in an office with with plants so i think a lot of that is actually in the public's imagination at the moment well this is something that we've picked up on in rhs science as well because we're doing more research on this and we've spoken to rhs principal scientist tiana bernusha to find out more Hi, my name is Tiana Blanusha. I'm principal horticulture scientist for the Royal Horticultural Society. The main reason I think there's been such a, a surge in interest in, in houseplants is because we are all becoming really aware as to how much good the plants can do for us. And that's uh, also coupled with the fact that we have these issues with poor air quality in the urban environment outdoors and that translates into indoors and plants are definitely a vehicle we can use to try and remedy some of these issues. My research project is on, on houseplants is largely through a collaboration with colleagues at the School of Chemistry at the University of Reading and a joint PhD student which um, we have between the RHS and the University of Reading. Curtis Gubb. Curtis is working on indoor plants and their impact on air quality. And particularly, we're looking at three sets of components. We're looking at carbon dioxide, we're looking at nitrogen dioxide, and we're looking at volatile organic compounds. And then we're trying to see whether different types of plants have different types of effects on how well they can remove these pollutants. The effects of these compounds on people are, are really you know, multifaceted. Increasingly, there's been this understanding of a so-called sick building syndrome, which is a situation where really people experience certain health issues such as headaches, fatigues, dizziness and concentration issues, which cannot be explained by you know, other medical means. And then they are attributed to what's happening in the building and you know to the gas composition in, in the building. And there are also other types of, of issues, you know, irritation of skin and nasal and, and respiratory pathways, coughing and so on. So in terms of the, the kinds of things we, we found uh, were that there were indeed differences in terms of different plants being able to remove different concentrations of carbon dioxide. Of the plants we've studied, we are sort of finding peace lilies quite good. We are also finding ivies quite good. And at the moment, we are testing a further range of faster growing plants like devil's ivies, also some uh, philodendrons, which 
which we think would have a potential. In terms of the number of plants needed, I think as with any green infrastructure, really, in many ways, more is more. So, I mean, having one plant, especially in terms of this chemical service, is going to have very little effect. And there are some studies who show that you need at least about three quite active plants quite large plants for every 10 square meters to measure some sort of chemical change of different components. But what we are quite certain from other research is that, you know, in addition to this sort of chemical effect that plants have, there is a very clear impact that they have on people's concentration, on well-being, on these sort of less tangible aspects where people report, you know, up to a sort of 20-25% improvement in their you know, certain symptoms which are associated with this, um, you know, sick building syndrome and certainly increases in, you know, concentration and just overall well-being. So I think it's good not to hang the whole story of, you know, why plants are important solely on their chemical activity. I mean, that's important and that's part of it, but it's also all these other psychological aspects which are, you know, science tells us really kind of real. I'm genuinely convinced from the evidence I'm finding in scientific literature, which deals with, you know, social, psychological impacts of plants, productivity impacts of plants. And, you know, from our own research on chemical side of things, that there are benefits in having carefully chosen and well-managed plants indoors. You can find links to information about RHS research into the health benefits of indoor plants, plus all the plants and topics on today's special at rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. So, Chris, you're in charge of the spectacular glass house here at Wisley. Obviously, entirely different scale to most domestic spaces. But what are your favourite areas in that glass house? The glass house is it's like growing house plants, but it's on the next level. They can really reach their potential. So some of the highlights for me are kind of the arid area. There's kind of a wonderful array of like different succulents, spiny cactus, such as the golden barrel cactus. And they've been kind of beautifully arranged in a kind of rocky landscape bed. And kind of at the centre of that, you've got this, the huge fan-like leaves of sable mexicana. It kind of gives you this kind of real feel of a new world landscape. And it also kind of demonstrates a range of plants and their adaptations and how they've evolved in such challenging conditions of the hot kind of dry areas of our world. Chris, uh, you obviously have a lot of direct contact with our visitors. Are there any particular things that they go for at the moment in the glasshouse to highlight as interesting? Well, I think at the moment there's a, definitely a lot of interest in uh, kind of cacti and succulents, um, so our kind of arid section. And of course, Chris, there's still time to experience the astonishing butterflies in the glasshouse. It runs until the 4th of March. Um, it's a chance to see thousands of exotic butterflies which have taken up residence in our tropical glasshouse. It's wonderful to see things such as the blue morpho fluttering around some of our impressive uh, specimens of things like pandanus and ravenella. Certainly a favourite with the children, so oh, yeah, bring yeah. them along yeah. too. And also, you know, amateur photographers as well. It's such a great chance. Well, obviously, we've all been inspired by what goes on in the glass house here at Wisley. But we know from the people who contact us in RHS Gardening Advice, there's lots of questions that people want to ask to keep their plants growing really well. Let's try and run through some of those now. Just thinking about some of the common things. What kind of plants are people most interested in or are perhaps most popular at the moment? 
Well, certainly one of the uh, questions that crop up quite commonly at this time of year, it relates to citrus, people bringing citrus in from the, the garden in the autumn and keeping them actually indoors in sitting room conditions, which aren't really suitable to them. And it consequently shocks the plants and very often those plants end up dropping their leaves or they become stressed and then prone to insect infestations such as uh, mealybug or scale insect. Chris, with the watering being key, and we're talking obviously citrus, but other plants as well, are there any tips that we can suggest to getting that watering just right? I think at this time of year, it's just trying to really scale back uh, with your watering. Um, obviously, overwatering is killing with bike hiding. Basically, that's the most dangerous this time of year. Best thing to do is when you're watering your, some of your house plants, it's just to allow the water to kind of drain straight through. Don't let them sit in, say, like a saucer with too much water, which will just lead to waterlogging. You mentioned about leaf drop as well, Rob. What might that indicate? It can result from a variety of things. And so, you know, usually when people present that problem to us it involves the kind of bit of detective work to see what conditions they've actually been keeping the plants in in order for those leaves to actually finally drop off and leave the plant i mean certainly going back to the citrus example the foliage often drops as a result of a change in atmosphere so you know if it's been outside in a cool environment suddenly bringing it into a very warm one can shock the plant and that can cause the plant to lose their foliage as can a change in relative humidity the atmospheric humidity which in a room can only be something like 20 percent whereas outside you know it's very often 80 or 90 percent but um, there are other causes I mean very often um, Chris was talking about not letting a plant sit in water if the root ball becomes damaged through overwatering, then the roots often suffocate. The plants can't uh, absorb water from this ironically overwet compost and as so consequently drops the drop the foliage as well. But also dryness at the roots um, can cause the same problem. So, you know, it's um, it's ironic really that um, you know the opposite extremes of, of caring for the plants can cause um, the same symptoms. And if they look at the roots, can they tell the difference between overwatering and too dry? Yes. If you gently take the planter out of the pot and examine the roots, usually healthy roots are white um, and uh, rotten roots, suffocated uh, rotten roots uh, are brown and mushy. You know, there's a very obvious indication just by looking. And very often also with wet soil, there's a rather unpleasant aroma, uh, particularly if it's become wet for a very long time. There's a smell of kind of rotten eggs, which is where the soil itself has become anaerobic and has started to breed rather nasty pathogens and organisms which will destroy the root system. Now, one of the things we've had a lot in the office, I'm sure you might recognise this from the glass houses, is little flies coming from the compost layer on the top. Moving away from peat towards peat replacement, this seems to become a little bit more common because they're fungus nuts and they're actually living on the, the surface and that the decaying organic matter, which is the compost, is ideal food for them, which is all very well. But when you're sitting there having your coffee and you've got a cloud of little insects, obviously we try and do something about them. What are your tips for trying to prevent and keep those under control? Well, one technique you can use is obviously dressing the surface of the compost with like gravel, which kind of restricts their access to the actual compost below. Failing that for an immediate kind of solution, you can use things like the yellow sticky traps just placed on the edge of the pot, which just help lure and attract the adults, almost trapping them, so preventing them from really breeding. In terms of getting the position right, what are the things to look out for? Where are the best sites in the house? 
the ideal kind of position in most houses is kind of bright, uh, but in direct light. At this time of year also, it's trying to move, make sure plants are in the right position so they're away from things like drafts in the homes. A lot of people can obviously have them on the windowsill, close their curtains, and at night they're kind of getting exposed to um, cooler temperatures, which obviously then can damage and lead to things like leaf drop. Uh, and at the opposite of the scale, what about radiators? Radiators reduce the atmospheric humidity around the plants, which will cause them to become stressed, can cause the leaves to become brown around the edges and at the tips, can cause the leaves to drop. And it raises the temperature far beyond perhaps what the plants need, particularly through the winter and into the spring. It's best really for those plants to be grown in cooler perhaps conditions because the light levels are, are so low. And so if, it's, if they're very near a radiator, you can often force them into, into growth. And on succulents and cacti, that growth can be untypical and uh, it will look very unsightly. And unfortunately, it's permanent damage. So it's best really not to put plants close to radiators at all. So in summary, we want a light position away from radiators and drafts. Want to keep it moist but not soggy, and then a lot of plants should do very well. Yeah, and probably a good idea would be to research the plant that you're thinking of buying just to find out what it's what conditions it likes, because there are some plants which will tolerate drier um, conditions, perhaps lower light conditions um, as well. So you know, if you if you aren't able to put uh, a plant into an ideal spot, look for ones which actually are able to tolerate better. The conditions you are able to provide them. So what are the key things to remember when choosing and caring for indoor plants? The conditions you can offer the plant actually suits it. So uh, first of all check to see what conditions it requires before thinking about putting a plant in that site. Chris in terms of containers lots of choice out there. Obviously the first thing to really, really appreciate is the kind of growth habit of the plant you're choosing. Um, obviously some are more kind of clump mounding uh, whereas others may be trailing which are kind of ideal then for like hanging planters. I'm quite a fan of doing like the, the macrame hanging planters where you actually kind of... Now macrame sounds very yeah. 1970s. So. Do, do you still make these up yourself or, or can you buy them ready-made? You can buy them ready-made but I, I must admit I make them myself so... <laughs> And it kind of really lends itself to things like uh, the epiphyllum angular. I know you brought an epiphyllum angular in, and it's a, a cactus-like plant with blade-like leaves and a kind of wibbly-wobbly edge as well. So, uh, And that falls down the sides, making a really nice display. Yeah, obviously in the wild, they're um, a more kind of epiphytic cactus species, and they're kind of ideal then to like a hanging plant, because like you say, they just trail down. And obviously in the kind of more summertime, you get the night-flowering uh, white flowers, which are heavily scented, so that's a... Uh, really added bonus. As some of these plants are often kept by people like renters or students who might be moving flat or house, how do you actually move them effectively without causing them any harm or causing them to die? What's the, the tips for moving house with your plants? Certainly one of the things to um, do is to avoid moving the plants without protection during the depths of winter when temperatures can be very low. Often indoor plants come from the tropics or the subtropics and so temperatures such as uh, you know one or two degrees that, that is quite possible during winter will have quite an adverse effect on them if you do have to move plants in those very low temperatures it's a good idea to box them up or pack them so that they're well insulated and not exposed to the temperatures for any length of time that's almost all we have time for today as I mentioned, you can find the links to all the plants and topics discussed today on the podcast page on the RHS website. 
Before we go, a question that's plagued parents, teachers and indeed schools of children for decades. How do I keep a Venus flytrap alive? As one parent complained, they're worse than goldfish to care for. Any tips to end this misery, Rob? <laughs> well, the temptation with Venus flytraps is to trigger the traps because that's the most amusing thing for kids, um, you know, to see them close, particularly around a fly, which the flytraps eat. But unfortunately, there is, there's a certain number of times that a trap can close before it dies. It's about three or four times. And then beyond that, it doesn't work anymore and it dies. So to trigger the, the leaves very, very often weakens the plant and prevents the, you know, the plant from gaining its sustenance. Um, but the other thing that often people do is keep them indoors during the winter, um, particularly in a warm room. And really, uh, Venus flytraps, they come from South Carolina in, in the States. They do have a cold period in the winter. And it's quite usual for the flytraps to die back. So what uh, is best to do is to provide that cold period because without it, the plants become stressed. So putting the plant into, say, a cool greenhouse, which is frost-free, or if you've got a, even a cold room without any heating, often the leaves will die back. Um, but un that doesn't um, cause the, the death of the plant. The plant actually has a little bulb un underneath the surface of the soil, which it then regrows from when the weather, weather gets warmer in the spring. So if you keep it warm all through the winter, it will stress the plant, weaken, and eventually the plant will die. I think it's fair to say that killing plants is one of the ways that we all learn to grow them. Chris, what would you do? What were your kind of top tips for avoiding those problems? Just give them what they need. Don't feel the urge to kind of overwater, pamper them, so to speak. Uh, and also it's just choosing the kind of right plant for the right position in your home. You're on your way to success. Rob, anything else to add? Often people ask us uh, when they, they report a sick plant to us, should I, should I feed it to help make it better? Often, you know, giving plants uh, fertilizer or food when it's, it's sick actually makes it worse. Unlike us, you know, which where we need food in order to build up our strength and help fight off disease, plants only use fertilizer as a sort of a supplement to photosynthesis, which it uses to make sugars from sunlight. And so consequently, providing all those extra chemicals can actually uh, force a plant to do things it isn't capable of. And so consequently, uh, the plant often uh, collapses as a result. And it's certainly often not a good idea to give uh, fertilizer to a plant say during the winter when it can't use them so the best thing to do really is to as chris says you know, don't overthink the problem plants have a very slow life cycle in terms of us they respond much more slowly than we do just to keep it ticking over find out exactly what the problem is but certainly don't respond by feeding so that's all we have time for today. We hope we've inspired you to bring a bit of green into your home. Many thanks to all our contributors. I'm Lee Hunt, and you've been listening to a special edition of the RHS Gardening Podcast. Until next time, from all the podcast team, goodbye. Goodbye.